Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga, and this is a Q&A episode where I will answer some of your questions posted to me. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, if you're stuck on what to do, don't forget about the five principles, pay yourself first, invest, reinvest dividends, do it forever, and make sure you automate that process. So, let's get started. So let's get straight into the Q&A session here. The first question comes from Anon, who asks, I'm keeping savings in a redraw for an investment property versus putting them into an ETF or managed fund. I have about $110,000 in my redraw, but I just realized that's very tax inefficient. I'd like to keep $50,000 easily accessible for my next house deposit, but what do I do with the extra $60,000? Now, the concept here to understand is called tax deductible debt versus non-tax deductible debt. Now, when I answer these questions, I'm going to go through the question and then break down the question into major concepts and topics. So, in this particular case, I just want to say to Anon, all debt is not created equal. The simplest way to understand this is if you borrow money to invest and create a source of accessible income, the cost of the borrowings is tax deductible. If you borrow money to buy an asset which doesn't create a source of accessible income, the cost of the borrowings is not tax deductible. So, for example, the home that you live in is not tax deductible. The car that you drive for personal purposes is not tax deductible. And any personal loans that you get to buy consumer items is not tax deductible because those things don't create an accessible income. Now, the aim here is maximize your deductible debt and minimize your non-deductible debt. Now, notice Anon actually had an investment property. So, that's in relation to this, right? So, in Anon's case, it's great that they have $110,000 in their redraw and it still means that they save on interest costs on their borrowings for their investment property. It just means the interest that they're reducing is actually then becomes not tax deductible. But it's not the most tax effective way of using their funds technically. Now, reducing debt and not having debt is always a good thing. So, you know, don't don't try and borrow money just to reduce your tax because you're spending $1 to save, you know, up to 45 cents. And in any mathematical textbook, that is a losing proposition. 
But if you do have non-deductible debt, such as you live in a house and you own it, then it would be wise to move the $110,000 into an offset account, which then offsets the interest on their non-deductible debt. Now, if you have consumer debt, then of course, they need to get rid of that even before doing anything else. Now, if they wish to keep $50,000 in the redraw of the investment property, that's fine too, but they then need to figure out what to do with the remaining $60,000. Now, I will go through the whole concept of redraw and offset accounts just a little bit later in this episode uh, as part of this question, Uh, but let's just assume that you want to keep that $50,000 in the redraw, and then what do you do with the remaining $60,000? To answer that question, here are the top questions you need to have a look at and basically write it down. What is your age? Do you have any dependents? And if so, how old and you know how long before they become non-dependents? What's your income? Where are you in your life stage? And that depends on your dependents and your age, etc. What's your risk profile when it comes to investments? You need to work that out. And are you an active investor or are you a passive investor? Now, I assume they've asked me about ETFs, so I assume you know they are a passive investor in this particular case. Now, it's difficult to provide an exact answer to this particular person without knowing all of these factors, but let me use an analogy uh, that I use quite a lot to highlight index funds or ETFs. Imagine you're walking into the grocery store like Coles or Woolies, and I like Coles, that's where I shop. Um, uh, you know, technically by the index, I'm a shareholder of Coles. And just imagine that Coles represents the entire global stock market. Each item in Coles represents a particular company that makes that item. And each aisle may represent a geographical area of the world markets. And each section within the aisle may represent countries or even sectors. When we go shopping, we buy a bit of everything. We take out a trolley, we buy bread, milk, staples, also some yogurt and some finer foods and cheeses and ice cream and chocolate. So we put everything into the shopping trolley. The index is representative of the specific market and automatically adjusts periodically. So when we go shopping, we buy more if there's a massive discount. And just like when you go shopping, some products are replaced by other newer, better products. And the same thing happens within an index or ETF as well, where companies just fall out of the index and new companies are added. It's basically a self-cleansing mechanism. And that shopping trolley that have all of your products that you want to buy and you check out and you pay for them, that's an index. So when investing in ETFs or an index fund or in the share market, think about going shopping to Coles for your groceries. Behave as if you would normally do when you buy your food. Now, before I finish up with this question, I think it's important to know the difference between an offset account and a redraw facility. First of all, they're not the same, although may provide similar advantages. They both reduce your interest payable on your home loan. The offset account, though, acts like an everyday transaction account. A redraw can't do that. And redraw allows you to use extra repayments you've paid towards your home loan. So you can actually access that money back, but only the extra repayments. And tax-wise, it's very, very different. Redraws, which are used, may not be tax deductible for their costs if the loan is an investment home loan. 
So a lot of people keep offsets to their principal place of residence. And when they convert it to an investment home loan, their entire loan costs are deductible. But if they had a redraw in this particular case, that redraw portion may not be tax deductible. So choose wisely, talk to your financial advisor or planner or accountant or even a bank manager or lender to better understand the difference between redraws and offset. It's a very common mistake that I see a lot of people make. So hopefully, Anon, good luck with your $110,000 and hopefully that clarifies some of the concepts that you're after. The other question I've got here is from Catherine who asks about renting out a house and talking about some of the cost breakdown um, associated with that. That's a really broad question and it's a good question. I'm going to go through this in extreme detail. Hopefully, this is very helpful for you. Now, firstly, I own investment properties and I'm not a big fan of them. So, I'm not in any rush to buy any more investment properties. Let me say that outright. Had I had another time, I'd probably not buy any investment properties and probably would plow more money into the stock market or my favorite index fund. I find the stock market easier, more liquid. I understand it better. I think it's more cheaper. It's more efficient. And there is less humans involved, which means generally less hassle. That is, my Vanguard portfolio has never asked me to fix the plumbing. Now, if you have investment properties, here is a cost breakdown. A lot of people assume that if they rent is more than their mortgage, then that's awesome and life's great. And I think that's kind of true. But what they forget is there are other expenses when owning a property and you need to take that into account. So there's two types of positive gearing. Positive gearing is when your income from the rent exceeds your mortgage repayment. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, which I think is more accurate, Positive gearing means the income from the rent is actually more than the mortgage interest payments, the principal payments, and all the other associated costs with that property. And we're going to break that down in this episode. So let's break it down. Number one, mortgage interest. Now, that's an obvious cost. This is obviously variable depending on the interest rate, the size of loan, the length of loan, and what discounts you get. The phone call or email you make to get a better rate every other year is far more powerful than the brokerage you're paying monthly for your ETFs or even your MERs for your index funds. Now, recently I spoke to a healthcare worker who was paying 3.6% interest rate. She made one phone call and was surprised to have received a 1% off her usual interest rate. So now she's paying three, uh, rather than 3.6%, she's only paying 2.6%. That phone call and paperwork probably took her about two hours in total. What's the return on that? And the way to calculate the return on that is the phone call saved her about $120,000 in interest over the lifetime of the loan. In other words, for her time of two hours that she spent doing that, she essentially got paid $60,000 per hour. That's her saving. Now, she was just paying the lazy tax all these years. The lazy tax is basically people who don't bother to ring up to get a better deal thinking it's just too difficult. It's a tax they pay. We all pay it. So think about ringing your mortgage broker and say, hey, look, I want to get a better rate. My friends, my colleagues, my workmates, they've got a better rate. And by not doing that on a regular basis, it's probably costing 
people hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially in all aspects of life, including their mortgage. So that includes you. Insurance. Insurance is a big example where you just need to fight for a better deal every single year. And I do that on anniversaries every single year, especially if there is a rate rise. Um, and you really have to ask yourself, you know, why they're increasing premiums if you haven't claimed. And, and, and I'll talk about some of the reasons why they might do that, but it's, it's absolutely important that you just ring up and ask for a better rate. So mortgage interest rates are one of the expenses that you need to calculate. Number two is insurance expenses. So there are two main types of insurances for investment properties. The first one is building and contents, and the second one is landlord. So you've got to shop around. Insurance companies raise their premiums for all sorts of reasons, uh, and that depends on where you live, um, is it an investment property or not, whether there's you know um, really bad weather patterns, um, any natural disasters. So you know what's happening now, which is absolutely terrible in New South Wales um, and Queensland with the massive floods, is that it will affect you in terms of your premium rates, even if you don't live in those areas. So if you live in Melbourne your premium is likely to go up as a result of potential claims that have happened um, in Queensland and are currently in a cleanup phase in New South Wales. Um, and as a result, you know, y- y- you have to think about insurance. You know, For you, it's never a profit-making venture. You're always going to lose money. It's a safety net. So if you have to claim insurance, it means something bad has happened. So a lot of people, you know, they, they sort of go, oh, I don't have health insurance because, you know, it wasn't worth it for me because I was paying for no reason. Well, if you're not claiming insurance, that's a good thing. If you're claiming insurance, then it just means something bad's happened to you. So definitely think about having, you know, building in contents and landlord insurance. Um, I think it's really important. But the insurance company always makes money. So just remember that for you, it's not really a profit-making venture. And every year, ring them up, email them, just ask for a better deal. You don't even have to get a competitor's quote sometimes. So I think it's really important that you get into the habit of doing that. Doing it at the renewal phase of the insurance policy is always going to be beneficial. Now, if you have an insurer and you have multiple insurance policies with that insurer, remember some of them, they offer a multi-policy discount. Uh, And also if you pay yearly premiums, it's often a little bit cheaper than paying monthly premiums. And of course, that all depends on your cash flow issues. Um, for me, I just prefer to pay yearly. Now, the third thing is, if you don't have an accountant, you need to have one if you have investment properties. Now, yes, you can do it all yourself, but in my situation, my time is you know worth money. So you know this is a very personal decision. So you have to do your sums. Some people really enjoy doing these things. I hate it, so I just offload it to my accountant. Because remember, every hour you spend doing your taxes is money you've potentially lost earning more money. And that's called opportunity cost. And opportunity cost happens in money terms, but also in time terms. And I do discuss about it in episode 18 uh, in a very detailed episode. So if you're interested, go back and listen to it in my previous life as DevRaga Personal Finance. So accountants, you need to have them. Now, the fourth thing is council rates. This is really not negotiable. Uh, and that depends on the council. Now, you may find that if your property is a holiday home and it's in a tourist destination, council rates are actually really expensive because to maintain those tourist destinations, it costs a lot of money for your local council. So, you know, they spend more money on public facilities. So, all of that 
costs money. So, you know, council rates, unfortunately, not negotiable. So you need to have a look at that. The fifth thing is bank fees. Now, Australia is a horrible reputation on bank fees. We have some of the most profitable banks in the world. Um, so think about things like account keeping fees, uh, which is usually monthly or yearly, and negotiate. Everything in money is negotiable. So, you know, don't just accept the rates that they give you. Um, and what's the worst that can happen? They're going to say no. So what? Doesn't matter. Just ask. Uh, it doesn't cost you a cent to ask. Now, the sixth thing is body corporate and strata fees. Now, this obviously depends on if you buy a townhouse or if you buy units. As house prices are more and more expensive in Australia, uh, it's becoming less and less affordable for new home buyers. People sometimes can't afford to buy independent houses, so they tend to look at apartments, units, or townhouses. And body corporate fees are not cheap. And often building insurance sometimes is actually included in it. So you need to factor that in. But remember, landlord and rent insurance is not included. So just be aware of that. You may need to actively participate in body corporate meetings. So these are all things that you need to take into account. In Melbourne, my sort of research suggests that in areas, you're looking at about $2,000 to $4,000 uh, uh, per year of body corporate fees, which is relatively expensive. Um, and the fees are basically used to maintain common areas and any facilities like swimming pools, gyms, or tennis courts, or whatever it is that you may have in your property. The seventh thing is real estate agents and rental management fees. Now, the going rate is around 3 to 6%, depending on the agent. So it's not particularly cheap. Um, and you've got to ask exactly what are they providing for their fees. Um, and then think about releasing fees. So remember, when the tenant vacates the property to release it, it's going to cost extra. Add fees. Um, and if they're in the same tenant and they want to renew the lease, there's actually a renewal fee for that lease. Um, so you need to ask about all those breakdown of fees as well. So three to six percent is roughly what I've come across um, in in Melbourne. Safety fees. Now that's important. What's that? Well, it depends on the state. Uh, your rental property has to be habitable and has to be safe for your renter. In Victoria, we have relatively strict policies on this. Uh, you need to service smoke alarms every year, maybe twice a year, I think it is now. You need to service electricity appliances if it's a furnished apartment or unit. Uh, you need to service gas appliances every single year, so oven, range woods, um, and also um, cooktops. These cost fees, so and that usually ranges around $250 to $500 uh, per month, per year, per property. So you need to factor that in. Maintenance. Now, the... Um, Maintenance fees can be highly variable, but tenants can have, you know, very high maintenance requirements, fix this and fix that and all that sort of stuff. Remember, they're paying customers. So you need to be, you know, accounting for that. So it's a bit like going to a restaurant. You're a paying customer. The restaurant has to provide food that, you know, is edible. And when you are a landlord, you are a business provider. Essentially, you have a rental portfolio, which is like managing a business. If your customer service is rubbish, they will move out or make a complaint. Tenants have rights, and so they should have rights. Now, some landlords feel tenants have too much rights. Other tenants feel landlords have too much rights. That's all just, you know, that's put that aside. At the end of the day, everyone has a right uh, to live in a safe environment. And as a landlord, you're required to provide a safe environment. 
So think about painting costs, carpet damage, gardening, plumbing, roofing, water heaters, coolers, general heating requirements, white goods, all of that need maintenance on a yearly basis. So generally how much I sort of account for is about 5% of total rental income um, is expected to be spent on things such as maintenance every single year per property. So like I say, my Vanguard portfolio has never asked me to fix the plumbing. And that's what I like investing in index funds and the stock market because it's just simpler. Utilities. So particularly water. Now that depends on the type of home and where you live and which state. The service charges for utilities are the responsibility of the landlord and the owner and not the renter. And the usage charges are the responsibility of the renter and not the owner. But in units and apartments, it could also be the responsibility of the owner. So you need to check that um, in your state, in your jurisdiction, and also for your particular property. Pest control, not a huge problem if newer builds, but a huge problem in rural areas. And if it's an older build, so the cost for that varies, so you need to account for that. And that usually happens every couple of years as well. Travel and accommodation. Now, I don't buy investment properties if I can't see them within an hour of driving. That's my general rule of thumb. So I don't buy investment properties interstate or rural. That's my comfort factor. So if you do want to buy investment properties interstate or in a rural area, you've got to plan for inspections. You've got to plan for costs. Um, And I'm pretty sure if property investing is not your primary source of income and not your primary profession, then the cost of travel and accommodation is not tax deductible. I get this question asked a lot, uh, mainly from doctors who buy homes in holiday destinations and then somehow think that going for a holiday in that destination, conveniently located in a holiday destination, um, they, you know, go to do property maintenance or they go to do, you know, inspections, uh, you know, can they claim the costs associated with that? And the answer is, well, they're a doctor. That's their primary profession. They're not a property investor. So no, generally, no, you need to ask your accountant for this. But I'm pretty sure you can't just buy a holiday home in the Whit Sundays and you're living in Melbourne and you go there every six months to inspect the property. That cost of your flight and accommodation is not tax deductible. So just be very careful about what you claim as tax deductions, particularly when you have homes interstate conveniently located in holiday destinations. Um, It's actually a very common question that I get. So um, yeah, think about that one. Lastly, legal. Now, mainly the legal fees are during a purchase phase of the investment property. But if your tenant is a problem, they're causing a lot of havoc, you may need lawyers to act for you. VCAT hearings, uh, particularly in Victoria, it's called VCAT in your own state. It's called, uh, uh, you know, probably something else. Um, so in South Australia, I think it's called SACAT. Um, you know, VCAT hearings can be a pain. It takes time out of your life to actually go attend these things. So, you know, it's not a major, major cost for everyone, but when it does, it bites. So it is a bit of a pain in the ass um, to try to deal with um, lawyers and properties, etc. If you're a lawyer listening to this, I apologize. Um, but it, it's it's just a bit of a hassle when you have investment properties. So hopefully this Cost breakdown has answered your question about some of the things to consider when thinking about buying an investment property. Now, I'm not against buying investment properties, but uh, you know, you just need to know the costs, and it can be very worthwhile, um, but also can be an absolute nightmare if not managed properly. 
Now, we've got more questions to answer. Let's just take a quick ad break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about um, burnout uh, and also the ethics of making money in the healthcare industry. It's not an uncommon guilt feeling that healthcare workers have, but just a quick break and then we'll be back right then. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, we're back now. So um, the next question is from uh, Anon again. Uh, property investing versus index funds, which one builds wealth faster, assuming using leverage for property? Now, that's a pretty major topic. I think I might actually do an episode on that. Um, I did cover it in a previous episode in my past life from DevRuck or Personal Finance if you're interested, but I will do another episode on that. It's a really, really big question to ask. So uh, I'm not going to answer it in this episode, but it will hopefully happen in the future. Next question is from a paramedic. Um, and this is a quite a lengthy question, so I'll just read it out. So many of the jobs and call-outs we attend are not emergencies or time critical. And our organisation knows this, yet continually justify not giving us breaks, finishing our shifts on time. Any other industry, it is illegal not to give staff breaks, but they constantly get away with it by working us all day going to low acuity calls that could potentially wait till the next shift, so response times look better on paper. I feel that this legally isn't right, but is rampant within the Queensland health system that I work for. So that is a really, really good question. Uh, Well, it's not really a question. I think this particular person is expressing their concern about some of the work hours and work conditions that Queensland paramedics are undergoing at the moment. And uh, if you're a paramedic across Australia working throughout this pandemic, uh, we all thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really difficult job being on the road and, you know, basically working in really tough environments, in environments that you're not familiar with. Um, and one of the things that I find really contrasting as a doctor is when I go to work every day, I know my environment really well. I know the nurses, 
I know the department, I know the cubicles, I know where things are, I know the consultation rooms, etc. As a paramedic, you get to know your ambulance truck really well. So once the patient comes into the truck, that's your domain. You are the king and queen of that kingdom. But when you're in someone's house, when you're on the side of the street, when you're on the side of the freeway, um, that's a totally different ballgame. So, um, and, you know, I've, I've worked with paramedics to go out to calls as part of my training. And it's a very, very unnerving environment to be working on the side of the road on a patient with cars whizzing past you. Um, you know, it's, it's a real safety issue. So, so hands, hands down, difficult job to do. Now, I'm sorry this particular paramedic is going through this. And my stance on this is it's BS. The paramedic is right um, and it needs to stop. This notion that um, healthcare workers, you know, having to work without breaks um, just to satisfy some bureaucrats' requirements of call-out times, etc., it's just rubbish. Now, here's some non-financial advice I give to healthcare workers all the time, or just any workers at all. If you're working in an environment where you feel unsafe or your patient's safety is compromised, keep detailed notes. Keep notes of escalations that you've done to your bosses, the names, the dates, the times. Every conversation needs to be kept as a contemporaneous note record. You got to keep it. Now, I keep it in separate folders, sometimes in emails that's, um, you know, password protected. And I've done this before. And you got to escalate through the chain of command. Yes, as difficult and as frustrating as it is, you need to go through the motions. And don't stop until you get a written answer or at least a meeting, which is also documented by you as well. So every time I have a meeting with my bosses or my subordinates and the meeting is about something icky and you know sensitive or personal or something to do with performance or whatever it is, I keep notes on it. I think it's really important. Now, if you're getting blocked at every single step, you may have to do the ultimate, and that is the whistleblow, and hopefully it doesn't come down to that, but we know that some healthcare workers have done that in the past. Um, But basically, my sort of general feeling is, at no stage should healthcare workers be forced to work in unsafe environments. Forget about the money. It's about safety for you and also your patients. Now, this has happened throughout the pandemic, and health bureaucrats trust me, will not hesitate to throw you, the healthcare worker, under the bus. It's happened. If you Google it, it's on front page news. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, um, you know, just people just getting thrown under the bus. And the bureaucrat will always cover their bum first. Now, this advice is kind of true for any profession. When in doubt, your boss is likely to cover themselves first and not you, particularly in the healthcare setting. And the stakes in the healthcare industry is very, very high. And that's why I propose that everyone keeps notes when it comes to their shifts, their workloads, if they feel they're working in a toxic, unsafe environment. This might sound a little harsh and maybe a bit militant, but trust me, keeping notes comes in handy. Now, burnout is a real problem in healthcare. So, 
you need to take care of yourself. Know when to say no. And let me finish by saying this, which I often say to junior doctors and many of my colleagues that I've spoken to. The healthcare system, nor the patients, they will not cry for you. So don't cry for them. Be objective, be empathetic, do not be sympathetic. There are very different concepts and if not understood properly early in your career, it will suck the life out of you as a healthcare worker. So hopefully, anon paramedic, it's not really financial advice, a bit of life advice, but hopefully those points resonate uh, and I really hope that things work out for you. The next question is from Laura, who asks, commission billing in private, burnout and ethics of it. So we did cover burnout and ethics a little bit earlier, but let's do that again. Now, what is commission billing? Now, we don't use that term in medicine. Um, Certainly, I just need to expand on this for people who don't understand. The word commission, I think, is incorrect um, as far as I understand it, what we tend to do in medicine is called billings concept. So first of all, getting paid commissions for directing specific types of healthcare, for example, as a pharmacist, uh, if you're pushing a specific brand of prescribed medicines, even if the doctor has mentioned that generics are okay, you know, that's generally not allowed. Likewise, as a doctor, you can't receive kickbacks from some pharmaceutical companies for prescribing certain medications. Now, in some other countries, that is actually legal. In Australia, it is illegal despite whatever you may read from so-called experts from social media. Get this straight. It's straight up BS. I've never had a pharmaceutical company come up to me and say, hey, Dev, if you prescribe this, we'll pay you. I have had pharmaceutical companies come up to me and say, we've got a new product These are the pros and cons, but they never say you need to prescribe this. And if you do, we'll give you money. And in fact, in Australia, every prescription is monitored electronically. So it's trackable. And PBS, which is a pharmaceutical benefit scheme, they can run audits on specific doctors quite easily. And doctors get what we call NPS audits, National Prescribing Service audits, all the time. And we get sent prescribing practices of ourselves in comparison to our peers. Everything from medicines to how many x-rays we order, how many CT scans we order, what prescriptions we give, and how many referrals we do. So the process is, you know, not the best process in the world, but it's audited, it's kept track of. So if you're a doctor that's prescribing a particular medication on a regular basis, and you've got no reason to do that, then you're going to be caught. You're going to be found out pretty easily. And in fact, for all patients that are listening, when I say patients, non-healthcare workers that are listening, something interesting that you probably need to know, particularly in the state of Victoria, and I think Queensland also has this, um, if a patient comes to a particular doctor and says, I want a script, and let's say that script happens to be an opioid or a painkiller or some sort of antidepressant or antipsychotic or something like that, or even like a sleeping pill, that gets tracked in real time which means that if you go to another doctor, that other doctor can in real time check who prescribed your last prescription, how many tablets, who dispensed it, which pharmacy that you went to. 
So in the past, it's called doctor shopping, where people can actually go to various places and get various prescriptions. In Victoria, it's actually completely eliminated if the doctor has access to this live prescribing data. So every time I prescribe something that's potentially a, a you know a painkiller or antidepressant or whatever, I log on to something called SafeScript, uh, which is a statewide service, and I tell the patient, hey. I can't prescribe this because just yesterday you got 50 tablets of diazepam from this particular doctor for this particular chemist. Now, I'm not saying that you haven't used up your 50 tablets of diazepam, although it's very unlikely in 24 hours you're taking that much and you're still awake, but something doesn't add up. Is there something that you wish to tell me? Nine times out of 10, these people either get up and they just leave the consult room or the cubicle or they start arguing with you saying that they've lost their prescription and they've lost their medication or it's been stolen. And in that case, I still don't prescribe it. So something that's probably sort of digressing a little bit in terms of non-financial stuff here, but I thought that might be interesting for non-healthcare workers or non-pharmacists, non-nurses and non-doctors listening to this podcast. So it's actually live tracked at the moment. Now, coming back to this whole concept of commissions, now, When a healthcare worker works in the private sector, they may choose to work for themselves um, or they may choose to work for someone else as an independent contractor. And when they work as an independent contractor for someone else, they utilize their business space, their equipment, their billing equipment, the reception staff, the building, the infrastructure to see patients. So they bill privately. And that money goes to the business or the practice owner. And that owner will take a percentage for accounting for their costs and their profits and give the rest to the practitioner. And usually that breakdown in general practice, for example, for doctors is around 60 to 70% um, and 30 to 40% goes to the practice owner. And the practice owner is then responsible for providing the independent contracting GP or the doctor with all the facilities and all the tools to practice their medicine. Now, this is very similar in dentistry uh, and also physiotherapy. The split, though, may be a little bit different. For example, in dentistry, it's much more intensive for infrastructure and the equipment-wise. So the dentist may only get 40% of their billings, whilst the practice owners may keep 60% of their billings. So uh, the percentage billings strategy or the percentage billings concept is something that's widespread in healthcare industry. So uh, because everything costs money and healthcare costs money to provide. And these costs have come from somewhere. Okay, so it's not free. Uh, and I don't think that private billing in medical, nursing or allied health professions is unethical because when you charge a fee to a patient to provide your expertise and provide them with the best health care that you can, you're not charging them for your time or just charging them for your time. You're charging them for the years of training that you've done to provide that service. And those years of training is not free to you, nor is it free to the taxpayer. Now, maybe, you know, As I've become older as a doctor, I've become a little bit more militant in my thinking about this. But I don't think a healthcare worker should apologise for making money, making a good living as a healthcare worker. After all, it's not a calling, it's a job. It's a job that you love, I love, we're all passionate about and should be rewarded for. Now, I have tradespersons coming out all the time to my house. Gardening, plumbing, electrician, whatever. They charge for their expertise. They charge for their training. They charge for their time. They charge for their costs. I pay them what they charge. If they charge too much, I shop around. Now, that's not dissimilar to healthcare. Tradespersons, 
don't give me free services because I'm a doctor and quote unquote save lives in, you know, so, you know, I, I don't ask my tradesperson to bulk bill me because there's no such concept. And this notion that somehow healthcare workers need to work for free or take a pay cut or sacrifice their life for the benefit of everyone others, I'm sorry, that thinking is obsolete. I know it sounds really harsh, but it's not. We're all human beings. At the end of the day, healthcare workers need to eat. They need to pay the bills. They need to look after their families. Um, Every doctor, pharmacy, nurse, nurse practitioner, social worker, medical receptionist, hospital environmental staff, kitchen staff, so many more healthcare workers are also parents, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, We all have responsibilities. So it's completely fine to be a healthcare worker and make money. Now, make sure that you provide a good service, you charge an appropriate rate, and you are very good at your job. So, you know, I don't want this to be misconstrued to sort of say, Dev thinks that healthcare workers all should be super rich and have private planes and private yachts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you go see a healthcare worker, there is a charge, and the healthcare worker has every right to charge what they feel is appropriate for their service. And if someone doesn't like that, they can go to a different healthcare worker. And that's completely fine. But it's okay as a healthcare worker to answer, you know, um, this particular person's question about, you know, burnout and ethics of it all. Um, I think Laura asked this question. It's fine. I don't think it's unethical to make money as a healthcare worker because we all have bills to pay. Now, on the topic of burnout, one of the biggest problems I find with private practice is the constant concerns about variable income and reputation. Now, this is one of the reasons I left private practice. Um, I didn't like to manage all of the billings and calculating my GST and all that stuff, which just takes time. I found working in private practice, it actually pays really well. And when it comes to headaches and stressors and burnout on top of that, for me, that was a real issue, so I've left private practice. I'm completely in the public system. Now, here's an example of why working in private practice can induce burnout compared to public practice. Now, this is not for all professions um, in healthcare, but some professions in healthcare. And in this particular example, I'm going to use a doctor as an example because that's a profession that I'm intimately aware of. Amy is a GP who works in private practice. Now, she doesn't own a practice. She just works at a practice as an independent private contractor, and she usually is fully booked every day. Her practice is very busy and the expectation is to have fit-in appointments because she doesn't own the practice. There are some leeways and leverages she has, but not much. Her practice sometimes double books her and patients can be complex and she's pressured to see all the patients as once they have an appointment, she feels that she's unable to cancel them. This results in Amy having to work extra hours. She does earn more income, but she feels a little bit overwhelmed. She wakes up dreading to go to work, despite her daily income being pretty good. She's usually running behind during appointments, and this results in lunchtime hours being consultation hours or checking results hours, so she doesn't actually get to have her own protected lunchtime. Amy's an excellent doctor. Patients love her. Patients want to see her. She's trying her best to keep up. And one of the concerns she has is, if she chooses to say no to more appointments, her income may drop as patients may feel disappointed and they may switch doctors. She feels immense guilt, not being able to meet the expectations of some patients and her practice. And as a result, she has entered into the spiral called HALT, H-A-L-T. 
That is, she's more hungry, she's more angry, she's more late, and she's more tired these days. And we all know these four attributes in healthcare workers is a disaster for making mistakes, particularly clinical mistakes. So burnout is a real problem in healthcare, public or private. I just felt in public, due to the unions and EBAs, there are safeguards to some extent, although those safeguards have been pushed during the pandemic, as we've recently found out with the New South Wales nurses going on strike. So just be very careful about it. In private, there is no such EBA as SAGE that's strictly enforced. It's a bit hit and miss. And this is why a nurse in a public hospital has generally strict patient-to-nurse ratios. And in private land, it's a bit of a hit and miss. And it's a little bit more demanding. Although the pandemic has proved that as a healthcare worker, you may be pushed to your absolute limit. So know your rights and make sure you do things for the patient. Make sure you stay safe, look after yourself and never, ever compromise on patient safety. Keep notes, keep detailed notes, times, dates, everything, as I talked about before. Um, It's absolutely vital and really important. Now, uh, Sarah asked salary packaging for government health workers. Good question. I actually did an episode on this uh, three-part series called Tax Effective Strategies uh, just a few weeks ago, I think it was, or maybe a couple of months ago. Um, There are three-part series. And um, that was released in uh, January. I've got it here. So, um, and I discuss uh, salary packaging in detail and the advantages in Victoria. Now, unfortunately, it looks like New South Wales um, healthcare workers don't get the same things that Victorians do. They get a bit screwed with their employer actually, you know, taking a little bit of their salary packaging up to 50%. New South Wales Health takes your salary packaging. So if you're a New South Wales health worker listening to this, I want you to contact your unions and just say, why is that the case? Why are other states not doing this? Why is New South Wales doing this? And I think you'll get a response, something to the effect of, oh, look, we tried many years ago and New South Wales Health said, if we were to implement salary packaging, then they get 50% and that's the rule. Uh, Well, it's 2022 uh, change the rule um, because, you know, it's straight up theft, in my opinion, uh, slightly militant. But look, other states are not doing it. So New South Wales healthcare workers, if you're listening to this, other states don't have employer share agreements when it comes to salary packaging. So contact your employer, contact your union, ask them why, keep asking, Let's band together and change this ridiculous rule. I think it's just ridiculous. So um, anyway, back to Sarah's question about salary packaging. Uh, You can actually go back and listen to those episodes. I've discussed about it in detail if you're interested. Thomas asks how to save on an allied health salary. Now, concept of saving, Thomas, is the same no matter which profession. And I think Thomas may be referring to, uh, you know, maybe that the allied health workers may not make a huge amount of money compared to other healthcare workers. And that, of course, depends on the type of allied health care. Now, I was actually amazed how diverse this sector is when it comes to allied health workers. And here are some uh, types of allied health workers that I came across. So, arts therapy, audiology, chiropractor, dietetics, exercise physiology, genetic counselling, medical radiation practitioners, music therapists, occupational therapists, 
optometrist, orthoptics, osteopathy, paramedics, psychology, counselors, sonographers, speech pathologists, and I haven't even started yet. So there's actually a huge variety of allied healthcare workers. So if you're listening to this and you're one of them, thank you for what you do. If you're listening to this and didn't know all that, hopefully you've now learned something new. Now, coming back to Thomas's question about how to save and invest in an allied health uh, professional's income, look, in healthcare, having a systems-based approach is important. Um, now, I you know, teach medical students and I have taught medical students um, as part of university and school of medicine, etc. And when I tell a medical student, hey, can you please examine this person's cardiovascular system? I want them to start off with a general inspection, look at the peripheries, have a look at their face, have a look at their mouth, then have a listen to their lungs, their heart, have a look at their abdomen, go down to the pelvis and have a look at their feet as well. So that's a systems-based approach. And When it comes to money, uh, having a systems-based approach is exactly the same as in healthcare. That's why I recommend 20% of after-tax income, and I call it pay yourself money. That money is deducted from your pay packet and gets invested as soon as you're paid. This process is then automated as much as possible. Now, the other thing to work out is, you know, actively think about creating side hustles, work on creating more income, perhaps taking on more shifts or on calls or whatever suits in your profession. So, for example, in addition to my clinical work, I run a side business for my education business where I teach, uh, you know, GP registrars to try and get through their fellowship exams. So, there are other things that I do which increases my income. Um, And then, of course, the next step is to work on reducing your expenses, particularly your discretionary spending. There are some things you can't reduce, like housing costs or things like that. But you can reduce the cost of utilities. You can't reduce the cost of technology and mobile phone bills and eating out, etc. So think about reducing your expenses. And over time, the aim is your passive income from other sources or investments should gradually catch up to your earned income. And that's when you begin to have a choice on what to do in your next life. So The concept is exactly the same, Thomas. Pay yourself first, start investing, reinvest dividends, do it forever and automate. It's as simple as that. Um, And of course, don't forget about thinking about increasing your income. Now, last question, Anon asks, what's the stigma behind being profitable in healthcare? Uh, What are the expectations of fee? free or underpaid labour in certain health professions, i.e. sports physios often asked by workplaces to volunteer their time for sports clubs. Now, this is very similar to Laura's question about making money in healthcare. What's the ethics of it? Um, I think it's completely fine. I think it's ethical, provided it's done legally and um, it's done in the premise that you're trying to do the best for your patient. And, you know, in the public sector, this is actually very common, the expectation of free labour. I'm not surprised in the sports physiotherapy, it's also common. Now, here's my view on this. It's pretty harsh, but it's wage theft. It's illegal. It needs to be called out. The expectation of healthcare workers to donate their time for patient care is rubbish. If I went to a lawyer and said, hey, look, I've just bought a house and can you just donate your time to help me sort out the conveyancing? Maybe give me... 30% off, you know, 30% of your time, just do it for free. Um, That would not be accepted and it shouldn't be accepted. Why is it accepted in healthcare? It shouldn't be. Now, having said this, if you volunteer your time because it's your time and you want to learn more and you want to do it, 
that's fine because that's on your terms. That's not an expectation from your employer. Now, when it comes to medicine, junior doctors, for example, are expected to volunteer up to seven to 10 hours per week on recent surveys working in the public health system, volunteering. They're not getting paid for this. Seven to 10 hours per week, they're working for free. That happens a lot. And it's BS. In fact, in Victoria, there is a class action lawsuit against some public health hospitals for reclaiming some of that free time. So if you're a healthcare worker and you're expected to work for free, it's wrong. Your employer should know this. It's illegal. So again, this happens in a lot of professions, not just in healthcare. Have a look at what happened in Coles. Have a look at what happened in 7-Eleven chains. They got caught. They got major fines. And some people ended up being in prison for this. So again, keep notes, names, dates, times of everything like this that happens because having a contemporaneous record of this sort of expectation is really important. So and on the stigma of being profitable in healthcare, well, I think that stigma has to break down and that's the whole point I'm running this podcast. I, I want to make sure that if you're a healthcare worker, I want you to know there are ways for you to save money and invest money and it's okay to make money as a healthcare worker. Number one. Number two, and the expectation of free or unpaid labor or underpaid labor in some healthcare, no. The answer is no um, because, yeah, look, I've done my f- fair share of free work in healthcare And retrospectively, you know, I didn't know any better. Now I do. uh, And I want all junior staff, uh, nurses, doctors, allied healthcare workers, pharmacists, whatever it is, unless you want to do it for free, I don't think you should do it for free because I think that's wrong. It's as simple as that. It wouldn't be accepted in any other profession and it shouldn't be accepted in healthcare. Now, that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using or leave a five-star review or rating on all platforms, even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to my podcast. So let's keep them coming. Lots of questions on this episode. Hopefully you found it useful. Some of it a little bit controversial, but hey, I just speak my mind. Um, I don't hold back and I don't think I've said anything you know, majorly controversial, to be honest. Um, I've just laid it down as best as I possibly can. And hopefully you found it useful. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorised representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 